Hello, and welcome to The Aura, a podcast that takes you inside and outside the work of art in discussion with those who create, curate, write, think about, and enjoy contemporary art. My name is Cheryl Sim, and I am curator and managing director of the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal. I first met Yasmina Tsibits in 2014 when she visited Montreal on a trip organized by the Slovenian consulate. This now strikes me as ironic, as her work critically examines the instrumentalization of artists and architects for the purposes of nation-building and state representation. Through a strategy of what I call politicized sensuousness, she creates sumptuous installations that involve film, photography, sculpture, text, installation, and performative activations. Scripting, enacting, and reenacting are part of her methodological approaches used to draw connections between statecraft and stagecraft. Through a feminist analysis of the complex entanglements of art, gender, and state power, Tsibits encourages us to consider the tactics employed by nation-states in the construction of national culture as an instrument of power. When she came back to Montreal in 2018 to install her mammoth exhibition, Everything That You Desire and Nothing That You Fear, she graciously took the time to talk to me about the correlation between art, diplomacy, and soft power. So welcome, Yasmina Tsibits. It's such a pleasure to have you here in Montreal, and it's been a wonderful process working with you on this show at the Foundation. Thank you very much for inviting me, Cheryl. It's been really tremendously exciting to be able to develop this project in conversation with you and the team, and also reconfigure some older works into this process and into the Montreal context. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit to start about how we met, because it was kind of an extraordinary situation, given the nature of your work. So it was 2014, and I got an email from the people who organized the Slovenian Pavilion at the Venice Biennial. They organized a tour for you in Montreal. Is that right? Is that how it went? So, yeah, I was doing a show in Ottawa. And Slovenia being quite a small country, the way how artistic practices are incorporated somehow into the idea of cultural diplomacy is quite intriguing. So there were still these strategies in place of embassies getting quite involved in sort of touring artists. And somehow that still kind of is attached to contemporary art practices as well, which is quite rare. And also this is kind of a the kind of the, the frisson of where mm -hmm. I'm quite interested in the correlation between art and diplomacy and soft power. Exactly. So it seemed rather ironic that given that that is one of the big concerns that runs as a conduit through your work, the question of how art and architecture are instrumentalized for state interests, it was kind of like perfectly poetically awesome that it should be a kind of Slovenian initiative to have you come to Ottawa, to like our nation's capital, and then for them to also make sure that the best of Slovenian contemporary art would get to around and to, you know, for you actually to come and meet other people in Canada. So it's actually very right because I've gotten to know that you play this double game through your practice. 
But before we get into that, I would really like to know, after all these years of speaking in depth with you about your work, I don't really know how it all started for you. When did you know that you wanted to be an artist? Yeah, it's a, um, quite the, the bottom line question that we somehow forget to ask ourselves, I think, a lot of the times as creatives, because somehow one thing leads to another and you end up in a situation where, you know, you kind of created this kind of rounded practice. And I think it's really brilliant to go to these startups and kind of look at them sometimes again and again and re-examine them because they actually tell you a lot of the times kind of re-enhance the idea mm-hmm. of why you are still there. Because, of course, you know, if we we're speaking about soft power in art and politics, I personally think it's harder and harder to keep on being a part of cultural capital for all its sort of political implications. And paradoxically, that's exactly why I started doing art. So I was quite curious in um, sort of looking at the contexts of the production of national capital and what that means for countries that are continuously reinventing themselves. So coming from Slovenia, which is a part of former Yugoslavia, but even before that, part of uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. So these are territories that have gone through very perturbing histories and loads of border redrawing throughout Mm -hmm. their histories. And I find them incredibly intriguing precisely because of this uh, punctum of self-identification through scenography through um, set building, theatrical tactics that every ensuing ideology had to reinvent. And I was quite curious, I guess, as a young artist, let's put it that way, um, in looking at how much of an accomplice are we Mm. as citizens, as um, makers, as thinkers, as parents, as children, you know, just effectively, you know, what is our correlation with the language and the aesthetics of the sort of nation-building spectacle. Uh, Do we take active part? Are we resistant? Are we reaffirming it? And, you know, how all of this is kind of rejigged in the current political climate. So when I was finishing high school prior to Slovenia entering European Union, and it was still that quite unsure period of a young state trying to find its uh, identity, its ground, um, and going to study in Venice in Italy, where I did have some family from. It was, you know, it was a very different, though, not only sort of different national ground, but also aesthetic, uh, conceptual ground. So, you know, as a, as a kind of, you know, young mind, you are sort of like thrust into these positions. And there was a lot of us coming from former Yugoslavia who were studying in Venice at that time. And a very interesting sort of correlation happened amongst loads of us who were effectively trying to um, create a system that we did not have. For loads of us, it was just this question of, you know, what is our role as artists representing somehow as well a territory that doesn't exist anymore? And what is our cultural milieu? And again, you know, former Yugoslavia, um, you know, the six republics that formed it sort of went through that post-Second World War because that was a space which was not effectively a shared heritage because all the republics were parts of different ideological or national constructions. So again, it's a territory where this continuous um, search for oneself, for, for national identity, personal identity is kind of in the blood of you know, of of the space. And, 
yeah, I guess as as you know, as a young mind, I really thought that art is kind of the right field to try and research that because art is effectively, in my opinion, where things can build up together um, in a most organic way where you can uh, work with scientists, you can work with geographers, you can work with curators, you can work with mathematicians to disrupt the normal flow of events. And because we're not mathematicians and because we're not historians, you know, we don't have to represent a certain authority. We can break things, we can break the flow of events, uh, question um, norms and create frisson. It's fascinating to me because you were born in Ljubljana in 1979. So that's just one year before the death of Tito, the, the president of the former Yugoslavia, who, as I understand, maintained a strongly authoritarian leadership that suppressed nationalism. And so he's gone. How did the environment that you grew up in affect your worldview and potentially your desire to speak through art? The very loaded question, of course, of, you know, the former Yugoslavia's history, which, you know, we've been looking at within the art and architecture circles. You know, we, it kind of hops up again and again in different periods. And personally, I always look at it or I'm trying to also problematize it um, as a potential case of geopolitical exoticism. So, you know, the kind of personal histories or the personal stories and experiences, of course, they're very personal always. But I think it's really important to talk about them. And it seems that it's getting more and more difficult. And it's not, you know, not only just in case of Yugoslavia. I think it's, you know, whenever we are talking about, you know, another territory where one does not have the direct experience of, we, we encounter these things. Right. Now, with former Yugoslavia, it's even more complicated and complex because, mm -hmm. you know, it's not even clear mm -hmm. uh, exactly, you know, to its people what exactly happened. And of course, we all have our own, you know, visions of it um, and theories. Right. But... Um, what is, I think, extremely fascinating is to observe it as a lens of a failed illusion. Mm. And this is where, you know, I think personally, we can effectively somehow sideline giving judgments yeah. and appointing blame, but effectively look at it, um, you know, as an incredibly enriching experience for our present condition, because we are effectively looking at a country that brought together six republics, uh, six nations, uh, three main languages, three religions, pardon, many more languages, under a baton of a single president. So it's a completely utopian form that, mm -hmm. you know, did not last. But it showed a lot of variations and options for coexistence of different nationalities. And it also, um, and this is where my interest mostly arises, it tried to create a shared aesthetic space within a space that did not have a shared aesthetic space or a shared heritage, because we are talking about very, very diverse people and so on. And it was effectively, and Yugoslav diplomacy was really utilizing art and architecture to achieve that. You know, the Yugoslav diplomacy was utilizing these details to try and help to create this, you know, um, kind of harmonious, uh, uniform space are, you know, very telling also of what generally, you know, mm -hmm. soft power is mm -hmm. and what it's trying to achieve. So we need to think of, 
you know, the, the main break between Tito and Stalin in 48. And what that caused is a riff in this, you know, looking for um, a certain language, uh, both formally and conceptually, and how that break pushed uh, Yugoslavia away from socialist realism and um, gave the impetus that artists and architects were uh, sought after who would help and create this new language. And nobody knew what it needed to be, but in terms of politicians, but they knew what it shouldn't be. So it shouldn't be like the Soviet. It shouldn't be like the West. So it had to sit somewhere in between. It had to announce to the world this new nation is capable of, of success and only success and so on. And then we have the Yugoslav Wars, which broke out in 1991. You were in high school. And I was wondering how that impacted also on the formation of your artistic mind, that that particular experience and what was going on in that part of the world. Yeah, I was just I think I was just mentioning this today to you that, um, you know, the Brexit vote happened 25 years and one day after the Slovenian referendum for independence from Yugoslavia. So, again, just, you know, as a reminder that all these structures are continuing and, you know, just history really does repeat itself. So as for the breakup of Yugoslavia, people kind of knew that after Tito's death, there was not really a leader there that could follow up in the construction that he set up. And again, I will not go into politicizing because it is it's quite a convoluted and complex situation. But what is interesting is, um, you know, sort of what happened with the you know, I guess with a shared Yugoslav creative space mm-hmm. after the breakup, because it was indeed a very much shared creative space. And, you know, with the breakup of Yugoslavia, not only that this shared space was broken up, but, you know, new notions of um, extreme populism started, extreme nationalism. Right. And this, of course, had had... Um, you know, an effect also on, you know, the, the creative, the um, the artistic production. Right. And also it was extreme trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when you introduce trauma into a territory that wasn't dealing with it before, again, what that creates is that you have a generation or a few generations of artists that have to deal with that trauma. I was 10 years old when Yugoslavia broke mm-hmm. up. And I guess the generations a bit older than me were mostly dealing with that. And for our generation, we as young artists, I guess we we were kind of faced with this post-trauma dealt with territory, right. which kind of created a vacuum. And it was a very strange period because trauma or that kind of creation of um art surrounding that became, or we felt, a lot of us felt that it it, it became a geopolitical exoticism. And as an artist coming from that period, you were almost have expected to be doing art that dealt with war, that dealt with destruction. And we were thinking, well, actually, you know, now we can speak about other things because, you know, these, these, these bricks were laid, you know, these things were not necessarily dealt with because, of course, they will never be dealt with. And, you know, my generation felt we were lacking an art system. And especially with Slovenian artists, um, it is quite funny that loads of us work with architecture and uh, institutional critique, but extremely connected to architecture. But, you know, fundamentally, personally, I can say that I was extremely interested in how the lack of, um, you know, sort of imposed authority through institutions or through 
um, through architecture, mm-hmm. through these containers of mm-hmm. theatrical experience, um, what effect they had, you know, on the on the artistic sphere, or on the lack of the you know creation of the artistic, um, not necessarily just the art market, but of the conditions for art. I find that yeah, very interesting. Well, we we talked a lot about this uh, exoticization and expectations around what kind of work you should make given, you know, where you come from and that happening often, you know, in sort of the powerful Western art centers. Uh, But um, you managed to, I think, subvert a lot of that through a very clever strategy, which we're going to get to in a moment. But um, let's talk about some of your earlier works. So, yes, you, you were schooled in Venice and in London, I found that there's an incredible, what we would say in French, un fil conducteur, you know, there's this uh, line of questioning that is really consistent through all of your work, starting right from the beginning. Airport Art, 2005. Maybe you could just tell me about that work because it really seems to lay the foundation for the works that would derive later on. Yeah, so this was this was very early. This was student works, <laughs> but it was. Um, it's actually it's um, it's kind of a, a, a thread of thought that I I've been trying to return to a little bit, but you know basically. So I was at Goldsmiths at that time, and yes, there was this you know push for mm-hmm. you know geopolitical exoticism, right. but also object making, and. I was I was quite curious about this idea of souvenirs and how, you know, a souvenir obviously has to represent a territory, has to represent the people. Most of the time they're fakes or they're breaking copyright, you know, or something. Yep. Um and also um I was quite curious about the notion of of these spaces of kind of this liminal spaces, airports, um spaces of control where you know, there is, again, this authority or either it's a gatekeeper or an experience giver. Um, but also the term airport art was effectively a term um, coined in Africa by British um, um, curator, museum director. And the idea was that this was this was a term representing national souvenirs or replicas of sort of national dress or masks, which would be then sold at airports. Right. Um, and I was quite curious about trying to, you know, problematize um, not so much the ethnic, mm-hmm. but the political. Mm-hmm. So effectively, my my take on airport art was trying to use a sort of political motivic or, um, you know, the kind of correlation between art and politics in a souvenir form, but based on a territory which doesn't have this ethnic ground. Because, you know, again, going back to former Yugoslavia, you know, the unifying thought was not sort of a shared ethnic or historical ground, but this sort of new language of the post-1950s. Um, and yeah, and I was sort of kind of rejigging those themes and playing around with souvenirs and treats. And also, again, you know, starting to problematize um, or just, you know, kind of, again, play the double game, but also, you know, uh, investigate my own role as a creator and the dubious role of the artist-producer and also asking how complicit am I in Mm -hmm. fueling the system of capital again with the new production. And so the work manifested itself as refresh my memory now is was it photographs of the of the objects that you were making or was it 
it was a series of works, and it was um, everything from sort of neon signs that okay. would come in and inhabit airports yeah. to um, sort of fake taxidermy <laughs> that was um, sort of imitating certain kind of um, her- heraldy. Um, there were photographic works where I would be, you know, kind of setting up situations within airports right. using only the system's own code of messaging. So, for example, I would stage this fictitious landing committees with uh, brass bands yes. at airports, yeah. but for like no arrivals. And they were mostly photographic works because they were <laughs> there was this kind of strange performative action that I I kind of got access to these spaces, but the public would not be allowed. Right. So I chose photography as a kind of primary access of the audience to the work because the audience would not be able to be present at a performance. So again, it was kind of playing on the usual fact of, you know, when there is a performance, there would be a photographic documentation, which would be then sellable. But in this case, you could not sell it because you would not get the permission to be physically present as an audience member at an airport or at a border or Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, on. mm -hmm. I mean, the sort of the idea of thinking about um, the creation of objects that are that are representative of your national identity is something that as Canadians we're sort of always kind of self-deprecating about. You know, it's like always the moose and the beaver or, you know, yeah. maple syrup or some kind of like, okay, how can we, you know, monetize this and make this, you know, something that people can consume, you know, not just uh, literally, but obviously figuratively and then kind of, you know, spread this this message of, of, uh, of what Canadian identity is. I mean, it's really been something that has been a struggle and continues to be. And I actually, you know, in thinking about your questions, I've started to understand that as being a healthy thing and a good thing to not have any anything really defined about it and to have this sort of sort of self-awareness that what we have you know, found like the best that we can do right now is still super inadequate. <laughs> yeah. And um, given again, like the like the former Yugoslavia, most of these sort of nation building projects are about bringing diverse regions together and trying to sell the idea of yeah. of national identity and, and national cohesion. And Canada is a very good case study for for that project. But so is. Um, the former Yugoslavia, which is what you use as a lens through which to look at mm-hmm. soft power and statecraft. I'm going to jump then to For Our Economy and Culture, which was the title of your work at uh, the 2013 Venice Biennial. And by this time, so many of the diverse components of your practice come together what seems to me like for the first time in a really big way. So you make film, you work within the architecture to kind of like affect the architecture in a way whereby we see it in a different way. So through the use of curtains and wallpaper, uh, photography, and then also in the pavilion, there was performance, there was costume. Maybe you can talk to me about you know, how you had the opportunity to finally bring all of these things together and how it affected the way that you would work from that point on, it would seem. Actually, the um, the Venice Biennial project started with um, 
you're going to laugh at this one. It started with uh, with the problems of, of national souvenirs of uh, right. not maple syrup, but lace in our Slovenian <laughs> ah, case. Okay. And I was invited to do um, a project for the European City of Culture in Slovenia, which is exactly this case of problematic of, you know, what is selected to represent a country. Right. And, um, you know, these, these situations are only as successful as the organization of, of, you know, and the committee. And, you know, in the case of Slovenia and that particular um, European state of culture, there was this kind of very big uh, difference between, you know, the national craft and, um, you know, souvenirization and the few contemporary practice moments that were chosen. And I really started to think about this whole notion of representativeness and, you know, what is the best artist and what is being chosen. And um, I started looking into successful and failed national icons of Slovenia. And I decided to focus specifically on Slovenia um, because it really then encapsulates, it's a very tiny territory as well. So it's a brilliant case study. It's a bit like a Petri dish, mm, you know, so you kind of right. you start to see bacterial growth very quickly. <laughs> yes. um, and I was looking at endemic species, right? So when you see what kind of, you know, look at stamps and notes, um, banknotes and so on, you know, a lot of the times you would have the endemic national flora and fauna and so on. Right. And in the case of Slovenia, um, I think it's over 75% of the endemic species are cave animals. So first I thought, oh, that's quite boring. What can you do with bugs? <laughs> but what was phenomenal was that... Um, Based on this, um, Slovenia became a mecca of um, biospeleology. So it was effectively the territory where it was proven that an organism can live only in a cave. So that a cave is effectively an ecosystem for a species, not just, you know, a part of the habitat. And I was started looking at the, you know, the, the nature of discovery of the cave animals. And what came out was that Slovenia as a nation that didn't really have a bourgeoisie. So all the wealthy people in Slovenia, sort of 19th, 18th, 19th century, would be foreigners um, who a lot of the time would be traders with exotic fruit, for example, or, you know, some other luxury commodity. But especially the fruit business was quite interesting because with the fruit came exotic animals. So the fruit sellers, the the the, the wealthy, you know, exotic fruits, Mm-hmm. Um, people, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they would be they would become completely obsessed with the cave animals and collecting cave animals, oh. and they would employ Slovenian men to be their um, their cave lighters. So it was this extreme colonial yeah. discourse right. that started happening in these caves with this construction of this weird idea and also which is extremely poetic so you would have a Slovenian cave lighter who would be lighting the way in right. the dark for a foreign right um, collector who wanted yeah. to check out yeah the so, kind of ecosystem of yeah, the yeah but you know just the whole thing of like you know yeah it's just a you know the the locality shining the light away <laughs> for a foreign investment effectively mm. you know um, <laughs> and um, these foreigners would be then naming the animals as well so this is where my interest really sparked because based on the innate taxonomy you cannot rename an animal except if you prove that you know it's like a different species or a different 
um, you know, what the species have evo- has evolved or, you know, broken into different uh, substrata, so on. And um, there, <laughs> and what I was effectively looking at then this, the specifics of um, a few beetles that lived in this one cave called Hell. And one of the kind of most interesting case studies was a, a bug, a beetle that was named after Hitler. And this was an ophthalmus hitleri. And it is most numerous in this cave called Hell. Yeah. <laughs> and it lives only in five caves in Slovenia. And wow. this is a beetle because of this, you know, notion of linear taxonomy. It cannot be renamed. So you're stuck with So you're stuck Hitler. with the Hitler name. <laughs> now, paradoxically, the Hitler name itself is causing the beetle to become endangered because neo-Nazis are collectors of neo-Nazi memorabilia are starting to collect these bugs. So they are breaking into the caves, they are putting up traps, and they are obviously killing off the local populations. So the name itself of Hitler is causing extinction. Oh my gosh. So it's a very, you know, it's it's a very sort of paradoxically poetic um, situation. And I really wanted to focus on that and explore that a bit more um, and see what happens with these sort of unfortunate national um, icons. So this was my European City of Culture project, which then I decided to extend into the biennial project. Right. Okay. So I was invited to, to represent Slovenia. And I thought, what better way to to go and to really, you know, in you know, really kind of investigate what does it mean to represent one's country. And, you know, let's look at uh, not only the national representatives uh, in a way of successful national icons, but also failed ones. So I decided to build the entire um, Slovenian pavilion out of um, extreme localisms, effectively. So um, it was like a, a historical sweep through Slovene history of um, these various ideas, so from the Hitler bug to, you know, which were the best artists that would be chosen throughout history, throughout different ideological spaces, but within the same territory, um, the architects, the language, the politicians, the rhetoric. So what does it mean if you would actually recreate kind of a national aesthetic and rhetorical space across time within one room? How would that look like? And in a way, um, it was a very risky project because also, you know, it was a small pavilion. We all know how the Venice Biennial works. You know, we did not have big galleries backing us. We had no, you know, PR and so on. So it really was playing with this kind of extreme local specifics. We were really wondering how this would work. And um, it was really quite wonderful because all these localisms kind of cancelled each other out and effectively, you know, created a space which showed or pointed toward extreme universalism of all these, um, you know, mm-hmm. these situations, because, of course, they happen everywhere. So within the pavilion itself, I decided to mimic um, ar- architectural strategies of the architect who was whose role was to uh, reinterpret uh, architecture in Slovenia post Second World War, where he had the role to accommodate different architectural styles for the new Yugoslav diplomacy. So he would have to translate Hungarian hunting castles into modernist palaces and so on. So I was studying his um, strategies, his methods, his um, use of wood, national stone, uh, you know, curvature he would use within the spaces to create and rebuild the sort of inner envelope of the pavilion, which then I populated with a wallpaper that was um, bearing the selection of Hitler bugs, which I worked on over um, with over 40 international scientific illustrators. So I wanted to um, reverse the rules of the game 
So I only gave the name to the illustrators and asked, well, if this is the beetle or this is the name that is causing this beetle to become endangered or possibly extinct, how do you think the beetle looks like? So we ended up with loads of uh, scientific illustrations that then made part of this wallpaper that covered like an ornamental rash the entirety of the pavilion. Now, again, the, you know, the play or the metaphor here was usually... Um, government or national representative spaces would have national wood, national stone. We had national Hitler bugs. And then also, you know, it's this is exactly how ideology works. You don't know that you're looking at a million of Hitler bugs. And on top of them, um, we managed to successfully borrow the mm -hmm. best collection of Slovenian artworks. It's a live collection, effectively, and it's a collection of paintings um, from the National Assembly. So these were works, these were paintings um, from Slovene Impressionists onwards um, that hang behind the backs of politicians in office. So this was an, a really, I think, in my opinion, this was the, the, the most interesting part of the negotiation that we were doing as an artistic uh, structure uh, within the pavilion, because we effectively had to enter into this negotiation with a parliament to be able to borrow these works. And this was not only an extremely valuable art collection that we were borrowing and taking into a space that really did not have adequate uh, museum conditions, humidity or anything, um, and we somehow managed to secure these loans and, you know, physically transplant these um, still lives. So we only took still lives because that was kind of a, uh, the, you know, the modus operandi of the project was let's take the artworks that are the ones that were least times changed by the politicians in office. And of course, these are the, you know, most benign works. So flowers and fruit. <laughs> um, Very inoffensive work. <laughs> the, the inoffensive work, exactly. Yeah. So this was curated on top of these these Hitler bugs, um, and then um, yeah, and then the the pavilion, which was a very tiny pavilion, had these two films present, which I made recreating historical debates on which artists should represent the nation, which I uh, reenacted from transcripts found in archives of numerous politicians and architects from the 1950s when the parliament was being built. Um, and they were effectively recreated and filmed within the building itself. And as a final act of the project, which was titled For Our Economy and Culture, um, was this, this performance where two performers were hanging the artworks were they were hanging the still lives the the invaluable Slovene mm -hmm. impressionists on top of the Hitler bugs and they were also dressed in Hitler bug printed trousers and shirts and I think they wore suspenders and they had little ties. I mean, yeah. it was just like you, you sort of fashioned the national costume, as it were, for this work, which really was a Gesamtkunstwerk. You know, it was like a total a total work of art. You really transformed that that pavilion. And then by also, you know, taking it further with this translation or transference of this collection, which was in this one building, and then bringing it into this other context, I mean, it really does, again, um, play this double game because it's so seductive. Being in that space, you are very much affected by the aesthetic the pleasing aesthetic of how you designed <laughs> the wallpaper with the Hitler bugs on it. You're just like, wow, this is really cool. 
and you're like, I like this. And then you're almost like, I don't mind that these are Hitler mugs, yeah. actually, because this is, you know, a beautiful place to be. And so there, therein lies, for me anyway, like the, this, the effectiveness of the double game. At the same time that you are engaged with a kind of critical perspective, you're also really enchanted and uh, charmed. <laughs> yeah, and I really wanted to touch upon also these you know, questions of political style, you know. And, and yes, the seductiveness of either its rhetorics or the aesthetics. But it's always what obfuscates the real message. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get now to the exhibition at the foundation, which is called Everything That You Desire and Nothing That You Fear. You have such a rigorous research process where you really dig into the archives um, once you've decided on sort of what the outer shell of what it is you're you're trying to get to. And there are layers that you seem to dig through over quite a long process, you know, of research. And perhaps one of the touchstones for us was that you had already been dealing with the question of Yugoslavia's implication in world exhibitions. Uh, a couple of years back, I mentioned, well, you know, the time of your show is going to be about a year after Expo 67's 50th anniversary, which was incredibly fortuitous and weirdly serendipitous because you've been looking at these kind of questions quite a bit in the shows that you've been doing preceding this one. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the various components of your research process and maybe talk a little bit as well around how collaboration plays into this process um, and how how this has culminated in in what we have with the exhibition that we have here in Montreal. Everything has a reference. You know, nothing is really without the legs of your archival research. I guess whenever I approach a project, I look at it from not only site-specificness, but also contextual specificness. And it was really quite um, amazing to be able to to work with Montreal Context because I was doing a lot of research into Yugoslav pavilions at World Expositions. And it happened that the last pavilion Yugoslavia ever had at a World Exposition was in Montreal. So this is 1967, which is many years before Yugoslav dissolution. But, you know, after after Montreal, they did not do a big you know, blockbuster expo anymore. So I was very curious in, you know, trying to analyze this a bit more, you know, figure out, you know, how all these, you know, tactics of, you know, how, you know, Yugoslavia was kind of speaking to the world or to its citizens, how this was changing, why, and so on. And in fact, we also look at the history of expos, you know, and how that was changing within the world. And I guess I started with the first Yugoslav pavilion in Barcelona in 1929, you know, in my investigation of expos. And what I was so struck with was that these are effectively, you know, it's the best playground of soft power to study, but also through time. Um, and you would always have with the World Expos incredible friction throughout the history of expos. Uh, and it still is between the outer architectural shell and the inner inhabitants, if you want, of these pavilions, sometimes to the point of unrecognizability, where you would have these extremely avant-garde pavilion structures, and then insides would be 
ethnic chic and you know kitsch and you know uh, those lines to kind of appease the you know mm-hmm. I don't know the you know uh, well actually what we come up to effectively with the Montreal Expos wives and children but this whole thing of you know, who is your audience who is the client who are you speaking to and you know within the history of Expos we really see how that changes as well from actually the audience who would be other diplomats um, scientists artists to um, to populism and right. you know what we have to understand with Expos is that You know, initially expos were what internet is today. Mm-hmm. You know, you would kind of go to an expo and you would see what the world is doing. And, you know, we really observe through the history of expos how this loses ground and how they become playgrounds for investment and quite big risk um, uh, investments a lot of the time as well. And, you know, how they lose on actual sort of proper soft power and then they just become, you know, Straight ahead kind of trade shows in a and way. Trade shows, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so the project here, with it, I really wanted to, you know, use and um, work with both of the spaces of the foundation and really observe them for what they are, their architecture and so on. And because of the different nature um, of them, they really seem to suggest two different lines of um, questioning, if you want. And I really wanted to somehow also like divorce this notion of the private ownership of an experience and you know what does what does an audience member come back with from an expo or or from an exhibition which is this idea of the individual experience based to on the collective experience so that was somehow like the you know the primary um kind of sort of emotional um investment I really wanted to make with this this exhibition but also I really wanted to delve deeper into the Montreal Expo and the Yugoslav Pavilion, but also in how the organization of the Expo, the organizing committee was mm-hmm. working, how much there was of design by committee to right. the states, how you know, how was it catered and so on. Now, as I mentioned, this was the Yugoslav's last pavilion. And, you know, with former Yugoslavia's archives, you never really know where you're going to go, where you're going to research. Right. Do you go to Vienna? Do you go to Belgrade? Um, mm-hmm. Because loads of these archives are not dealt with. They're not, you know, they're not labeled. They don't have boxes. So for a number of years now, I've I've worked together with um, a few researchers that are extremely seminal to these projects. Um, and number one is Yelitsa Jovanovic, who is an incredible architectural historian, architect and researcher um, based in Belgrade. So I have worked closely with her on this project of trying to find um, the source material. Right. I think a lot of the times with these projects, like you you know where you're going. And I think you described really well how I work because I don't quite know the outcome a lot of the times because it's a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah. Because you don't know whether you're going to find some incredible transcript Or you're going to find just like one letter. You might just, you know, compose from different sources this picture in your head that you want to translate as a song. It's, you know, it mm-hmm. is, it just, it's so varied. It's difficult as well to give yourself a deadline on creative process, right. which of course you have to in these cases. Yeah. Um, and I think here we were like, we were incredibly fortunate um, with being able to, you know, find just about enough to to be able to kind of build the basis on. And also we worked with with the rooms, the archive in Canada, right. because the Yugoslav Pavilion, as with many pavilions after Expos, was sold 
And it was then rebuilt in Newfoundland as a maritime museum, which also I found incredibly that is, is interesting. unbelievable, yeah. But yeah, so the main question I came up with for myself or also for the audience after studying in quite in depth the, the Yugoslav Pavilion in, for Montreal was the nation of using this, these disappeared architectures as um, illusionist boxes, magic boxes that effectively also speak of their clients. So these nation states that many times disappear. So this idea of a nation state as an illusion came out. And the film, which ended up being the kind of the cherry on the top of, mm -hmm. of this investigation, uh, which will be on show uh, at the foundation as well, uh, literally recast the form of the pavilion uh, as a magic box. It's a series of magic tricks where the central figure... The illusionist, who is a female in this case, um, continuously disappears with each trick, with each triangle, which was representing one of the six republics and the host country. So with each trick, each disappeared republic, the illusionist, so the woman, disappears in a more violent way. Mm -hmm. um, and it was partly also to do with, you know, as I was kind of sweeping through the archives and, you know, you kind of you follow these political meetings when, you know, the politicians sit down and say, well, how will we represent ourselves? How will we represent our country? And they started with this incredibly overly positive uh, floscolas and, and grand statements about what they need to achieve through art, through architecture, through science, through technology. And with each meeting, they become more and more pragmatic. And um, in this case of the discussion surrounding Montreal Expo, they become effectively uh, more and more chauvinist. Uh, they're, they're taking more and more power away from the female spectators um, and they are becoming increasingly populist. So I really wanted to kind of um, create a script for the film which would be translating that mm -hmm. structure from these transcripts into visuals. And the other thing that strikes me, uh, even from the Spielraum trilogy of films that you made and how it, what's sort of another coherent line, through line to this exhibition is this discussion of sort of the female body as being a conduit through which to transmit the idea of the ideal mother nation. Also, you flip it around so that you can bring uh, a feminist critique to uh, how the female body is either absent or all too objectified for the purposes of a kind of nation-building idea. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you've really brought that through in this show as well. Yeah, so the, you know, the gendering of the past and I guess the kind of feminist reading of the archives is, you know, is always very fundamental to, to the process itself. But I decided to make it more obvious after the Spielram trilogy was a series of three films where I wanted to look through the lens of the word Spielraum, mm -hmm. which was a word by one of the first European satirists who was criticizing not only design as um, as an ornament or like ornament as a decoration and as something that obfuscates the real, but also language. So he was a contemporary of Adolf Loos. So there was that whole kind of idea of, you know, how language and, and um, aesthetics kind of obfuscate and just decorate and take away from, you know, from the real. Um, so within that trilogy of films, Spielraum, I looked at the start, the running room and the death 
of an aesthetic uh, form or uh, a new aesthetic language. So what happens when a new aesthetic language is developed in the name of ideology or nation states? What happens to this language when it's fully functional? And what happens to that language when uh, its client demises, so when the nation state or the ideology dies. Mm -hmm. So that that was the trilogy of the films. And the last one I filmed in the former Palace of Federation in Belgrade, which was um, a modernist palace, which was built between 47 and 61. And it was just inaugurated with the first conference of the Non-Aligned Movement. And it's now effectively an empty shell because, you know, it's just too large for Serbian politicians to use it. But it was kind of the epicenter of Yugoslav politics, let's put it that way. And at the center lie these six salons, one salon per republic, which were decorated in style of the six republics by the artists of the six republics. And it's effectively like a time capsule. But... um what I, what I was so shocked by in that space was that all two-dimensional works um, on the walls and everywhere were extremely vanguard. So this is, you know, the 60s. So they were very much in line with what was happening, you know, in the West as well. They were very, um, you know, just amazing, um, aesthetical, formal and conceptual pieces. But all the sculpture works uh, within these spaces were of female nudes. Not only female nudes, but highly eroticized female nudes. And these were spaces where, you know, the diplomats would meet, where the heads of states of the non-aligned of, you know, all the other countries would be meeting. And this went to the point that, you know, I, I really wanted to work with this idea of, you know, how there's this complete absence of women from these dialogues. Like, even when you go through these transcripts, and we're talking about the 60s now, mm-hmm. you would have the ministers discussing. And when there is um, a woman speaking, she will not be present with her name. She would be present as a female voice from the background says. So it was just this this really strange, um, you know, total void of, of women. And also, you know, speaking of, you know, the Yugoslav Expos from from Brussels 58, also Montreal 67, there were very, very few female artists present. Um, No painters whatsoever. There was uh, one sculptress, a few um, tapestry makers. And um, all of them, this is now from Montreal I'm talking about, all of them were lovers or wives of the politicians and architects that were working on the project. And this is 67. So this is quite late for these structures and especially for a country like Yugoslavia which was sort of of course it was only on paper the whole you know kind of gender equality but you know we had amazing women artists so also the project in Montreal really wanted to pick up on that and really bring these this this women artists in so you know we have them present in typography um you know in the other artworks that kind of we that are woven into then the objects that appear are referencing the actual physical works and physical labor by the women as well uh, not only as you know these sort of yeah yeah um, just kind of um embodiments right right just well like the the eye candy or whatever. This show, to my knowledge, is perhaps the most total, you know, work of art. Um, You have a number of films. You have the new film that we just spoke about. You have uh, really transformed the space or cloaked the space with a ceiling that is referenced from the Palace of the Federation in Belgrade. You have 
curtain again used to um, the most boudoir-esque effect. And you also have photography and sculpture, but furthermore, performance again. Could you tell me about what we're going to see or what we see uh, in the performances? It's brilliant. No, you, you brought up some really, you know, fantastic um you know, um, sort of details that are kind of quite the seminal ones, I think, for the, for the work. And you just made me think a bit more about how, you know, relevant also this, this distinction of the space, um, the four-story space, um, as this kind of intimate scenario is. So, you know, what effectively the curtain does, so the entire space is draped, cloaked in the curtain, which kind of cuts it through. But it's also all the works with the curtain and all the sculptures and all the scenography and all the rhetorics that are present within it are drawn from uh, artworks and language, which was utilized for statecraft spectacle, but now in an intimate residential-esque form. And I just wanted to pick up on this because I think it's quite important for the performance itself, because it was something, again, started with the Venice biennial project where I was effectively translating architectural strategies that were aimed at hard, rigid, statecraft, public space. Well, public space is not very accessible to public, but, you know, government palaces, architecture, which is there for the politicians, for the national authority. And I was using those structures and bringing them into an intimate setting. Now, this, I think, is very important to kind of uh, point to because, you know, Paradoxically, the, you know, the, this government architecture is less accessible to the citizen than a private space of your neighbor even. So, you know, this notion also of like bringing or like collecting, because in a way, you know, we really are collecting and kind of depositing within this kind of residential-esque space, all these strategies as souvenirs, we're kind of re-questioning that, that situation. And also, you know, it is quite boudoir-esque. And this is, again, where the kind of the female presence mm-hmm. comes in mm-hmm. uh, into question. So the entirety of the project is really populated by female figures. Now, sometimes they're speaking, sometimes they're singing, sometimes they're mute, sometimes they're decorating, but they really are rejigging these questions of the stately mother nations and their failures, you know, from um, kind of nationalistic painting to, um, you know, grandiose um, political speeches where, you know, the women would be only, you know, the wife standing next to to the one who addresses. Um, So they really, really are transcending all these functions, but they are being, um, you know, they are endorsed um, or they endorse the political speech. So it's kind of, again, this kind of like double take, you know, they are not ventriloquists. Yeah, they're not ventriloquists. They're not sort of the puppets. That's right. Yeah. And the performances are here um, kind of the key to the reading and I am very happy that we are able to stage them throughout the duration of the show because also you know these spaces that I create they are theatres and most of the time the audience becomes the actor the actresses themselves but it's really wonderful when we have the possibility to bring in the performers so we will have two sets of performances that are switching on effectively to um two installations effectively two sculptural pieces and they're sung and they also present um, certain sort of manual labor that is also questioning um the idea of when is an artwork finished 
when is something complete? When, you know, when can we say the phrase is done? It's, it's finite. Or when mm-hmm. do we continue to, you know, renovate and relaunch? And um, the first one is a series of political speeches that are sung in a form of a, um, two female voices um, whilst the performers are in in action with two kilim uh, woven textiles. And they are, sometimes the voices are helping each other, sometimes the voices are fighting with each other uh, as the manual labor that they are doing. And um, the words themselves are picked from these political, rhetorical debates surrounding national representation at the Montreal Expo. Yasmina, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. And um, thank you for bringing uh, Montreal out to, uh, to a kind of international dialogue. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for the invitation. And thank you to your whole team because you've been absolutely amazing to work with. Thank you for listening to The Aura. This podcast was conceived by the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art and produced and recorded at the Phi Centre in Montreal.